Welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Adams Morgan. Uh, we are irrationally excited today to be joined by uh, the one and only Simon Goodwin. Uh, did I say that right? Um, it's actually Godwin. Godwin. Oh, I'm a, what, I'm, I can yeah. live with Goodwin. I'm, no, I'm such, I'm such a wanker. Um, I apologize. I want to pronounce your, your first name. I, I want to add an extra O there. I feel bad about it. Um, that's an English name, I imagine. It is an English name, an old English name. What is, God- the, what is the etymology on, on Godwin? I think it's God when, meaning originally God kin or close to God. Oh, heard. Um, so it's not like it's not like a victory for a deity or anything along those lines. I think that's right, and I think the one of the I think was it Mary Shelley's father or father-in-law was a Godwin, and so there's some kind of literary stuff. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that for you. Um, uh, well, Simon Godwin uh, joining us. Uh, he is the artistic director of Washington D.C.'s Shakespeare Theatre Company. Uh, he started his directing career at uh, uni at Cambridge and uh, subsequently served as uh, assistant director at the National Theatre of London, the Royal Court Theatre, and the Bristol Old Vic, among others. Uh, in 2019, uh, he made his Tokyo debut directing a Japanese cast in Hamlet. In the midst of pandemic shutdown, he directed a critically acclaimed production of Romeo and Juliet for the National Theatre Company. Uh, that was broadcast as an original film on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, He has since returned to the nation's capital and launches his latest production later this February, starring Patrick Page in King Lear. Thank you for joining us, Simon. Great to be here, Bill. Pleasure to have you. Uh, The premise here is a little different than uh, our typical premise. Uh, I am kind of running the roost for the sake of the wines on offer today. I have a flight of wines to share with Simon inspired by wine in Shakespeare's days and Shakespeare's plays. And uh, I will kind of share what I know of them and their history, and Simon will offer his thoughts about how they relate to his work. Uh, We are going to move uh, from Spanish sack uh, onto Bordeaux claret uh, into Malvasia, or Malmsey, from Madeira, and close things out with Rhenish Riesling. Uh, I will kind of um, crown proceedings with one of my favorite sonnets and uh, ask for some parting thoughts from our illustrious guest. Uh, Now, normally, I shamelessly hawk the wines we're drinking, uh, and I will do my best to make them available at Revelers uh, across the street. But today, uh, I employ you to spend your money instead on a ticket to the theater. Um, It has endured a uh, a worse uh, fate in pandemic even than the restaurant industry, and uh, we should be celebrating uh, the amazing um, opportunities that Washington has to offer as a theater-going metropolis. Uh, before we dive into the wines, uh, a few questions about your stage life, uh, Simon. Um, I have this whole theory uh, when it comes to chefs uh, that they are born, not made, and I feel kind of similarly about dramaturgs. I feel like a lot of you, you know, have always gravitated uh, to the stage when did you decide you wanted to make a life in theatre? Oh, well, thank you uh, for that great question about the origin story, as it were. I think being the eldest of four children probably helped me 
Um, so you were a natural director? A natural director, naturally bossy, which is a really <laughs> good prerequisite for being a director. Um, so yeah, bossy, although I did very much want to be an actor when I was a child. And actually, as a teenager, I was in this um, period drama for the BBC called Five Children and It, which was an E. Nesbitt novel. And um, I had three months away from home when I was 13 shooting the show. And it was extremely exhilarating and fun. And I carried on doing you know, the occasional part on television. Uh, through my teenage years, but I, I realized by the time I got to university that I was very good at playing versions of me, but no good at all at playing versions of other people. And there, really, are, there are actors that make very good careers out of playing different versions of themselves. I won't name any of them, but uh, I feel like a lot of actors do that. Yeah, we all know a few, I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, but for me, somehow that, that lack of transformation, of that transformative muscle... Uh, made me realize that I was only ever going to feel, in the end, claustrophobic in mm. versions of me. And what I really wanted to do was to step into versions of other people, and, I, and if I couldn't do that through acting them, maybe I could do that through directing them. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so, I mean, you answered my, my second question, which is why directing, uh, as, as opposed to uh, acting. Um, you started at uh, Cats at uh, Cambridge. Uh, what was your first uh, directorial assignment? Um, well, yes, I got to Cambridge University to St. Catherine's College, known as CATS, colloquially. I was told the cool kids called it CATS. Yeah, yeah, I'm impressed that you know that, Bill. Um, and um, it was really in my first few weeks that I, 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 I had an interview and got the job of directing my fellow freshers, the fellow uh, newcomers to the university, the kind of first years, um, in the freshers show, which was a version of the Canterbury Tales. Oh, that's brilliant. So this, this is a uh, freshman-only Chaucer production. I like that. Correct, and of course, Chaucer was much interested in having a merry old time and uh, very body. I think very, that's good. Good for freshmen. Very good for freshmen, and uh, it was a lively, jolly, maybe slightly bawdy show. And uh, yeah, that's where I got hooked. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, why the Bard then, subsequently, as a, as an area of influence for the sake of you know your stage career? Is that is there an era? Is there like an aura of inevitability about that as a as an Englishman? Or yeah, I think that. Probably um, Shakespeare divides as much as he conquers. And there are lots of different impressions we all have of Shakespeare. Some of us feel close to him. Some of us feel further away. Some of us feel he's accessible. Many of us find him to be the opposite, actually very impenetrable. Um, in fact, there's a nice link to Washington. At the end of my first year at Cambridge, I directed a student tour of North America of Hamlet, and we toured it around different American cities, uh, including coming to Washington. Oh, brilliant. Uh, we played it at Georgetown University. Oh, that's so cool. And um, so I was 19, and it was one of the first Shakespeare that I directed. But I immediately felt um, an affinity to Shakespeare's language, the complexity of what he was trying to grapple with, and the amazing ways he used words to describe very complicated feelings and thoughts. And really, from that moment on, I became very curious and excited about Shakespeare's work. And although I've directed many other plays and new plays and other classics, it's Shakespeare that I've kept coming back to throughout my professional life. Yeah, he's kind of the alpha and omega. Yeah. Um, I, I quite like that. Now, um, you kind of teased that first visit to Washington. What did you think of Washington as a 19-year-old burgeoning stage director? Um, well, I found Georgetown very delightful. and I don't know how emblematic Georgetown is yes. of the rest of the city. <laughs> yes, and it was a little enclave that I witnessed and was impressed by how beautiful it was. Um, and, and then I went to New York with the show and other places. But this idea of this um, 
Yeah, this radiant city called Washington really stayed with me. And actually, it was several, well, many years later that I brought a production from the Royal Shakespeare Company to the Kennedy Center. Indeed, once again, ironically, of Hamlet, this time set in a West African context. Brilliant. So the show came to um, the Kennedy Center, and I became... And with a, a black lead as Hamlet, no? That's right. It was a Ghanaian actor called Papa Asadu, British Ghanaian actor, and actually a largely black company, um, retelling the story through a very different lens. And it was a magical experience and wonderful to be reunited just at the moment when Shakespeare Theatre Company were looking for a new artistic director. Oh, so it was kismet. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, what did you've worked at, you know, pretty much all of the, you know, kind of major West End kind of destinations for, um, you know, serious players in, in, in England. What did they think of your, you know, move to Washington? Did that feel like an exile, or did that feel like an opportunity to, to them? Well, I think a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I'd worked solely, really. I mean, I had excursions, as you referred to in the introduction to Japan, and, and I actually had done some work in America, standalone shows, but very much my base had been either the Royal Court, a play dedicated to new writing, or the Royal Shakespeare Company, or the National Theatre, where I was based pretty much full-time. So to set off on this great adventure, um, yes, was as mysterious to me as it was to others, or yeah. as mysterious to others as it was to me. And I'm still very much learning uh, the kind of, yeah, what this amazing journey holds for me. Um, so I'm going to, this is always a little obnoxious, but I'm going to indulge it nonetheless, because I love this quote. Uh, this is uh, you and The Guardian um, talking about um, coming to Washington. And I, there's a restaurant analogy here, so I really dig it. Um, uh, this is an interview about you know, coming to Washington, D.C. You say, uh, I think what people are hungry for here is generosity of spirit. They're happy to go to the darkness so long as you also bring them into light. But look, the comparison that I used when I was sharing the program with people is that I'm running a very successful London restaurant. I'm about to open a new restaurant in Washington, some of the dishes people enjoy, and some of them I'll discover they don't like at all. Um, what have you discovered for the sake of what audiences here respond to versus what you know, your average London audience responds to? Yes, yes, thank you, Bill. And I think that's why I, I, I think you and I get on so well, because there's a sort of common aim or co shared endeavor of creating the dishes, be it metaphorical or real, which people take joy and meaning from. Um, I've learned that the audience in Washington care deeply about Shakespeare, um, they care deeply about productions that are clear, uh, accessible, entertaining. Um, they really love event theater, event. So we did a show with, um, based on the music of Britney Spears, Once Upon a One More Time, last year, which was our biggest selling show ever. And I discovered that people in Washington are really hungry for the euphoric uh, experience of magnitude. And it can either be uh, an uplifting musical like Once Upon a One More Time, or it can be a show like King Lear. But I think folks are interested here in going the distance, the full experience. They're not so interested in sort of um, small or, or kind of meager offerings. <laughs> They're here for the full three-course banquet. It, they don't want like a, a one-room play or, uh, no, less, less domestic dramas, less... Uh, uh, I mean, that, that kind of stands a region, though. I mean, as the, you know... Uh, in its own eyes, you know, capital of, you know, the democratic world. I, I think we want, you know, to consider drama on the stage on, on similar terms. Absolutely. I think there's a hunger for the monumental yeah, here in Washington, yeah, which yeah. I'm seeking to deliver. 
Yeah, um, and I, I'm sure I, I, I struggle with that sometimes for the sake of wines. Uh, I, I think you know, equally in the glass, uh, it, it is a city that historically has has, tro- has struggled to um, sometimes embrace the avant-garde in wine and and, and uh, appreciate more subtle voices than you know the the Cali cabs of of the world. But I think that taste is also evolving e- mm. equally. Um, and um, you know, uh, I find that. Um, you know, at the restaurants equally, sometimes you make your own audience for the sake mm-hmm. of, you know, the kind of crowds that you attract and the kind of people that continue to, you know, seek you out for the sake of, of um, what uh, you have to give them. Absolutely. And I think that great theatre is nutritious in the way that yeah. great fine dining is. And it's also a very um, heady cocktail of atmosphere, service, space, narrative, character, emotion, all of these things go into a great play. And in my view, all of these, these things go into a great restaurant. Yeah, no, and, and equally, I think, um, even for the sake of productions that, you know, do dive into these kind of, um, you know, kind of choir motifs and, you know, these, these shades of gray, you know, I, I think, um, or I like to think as a, as a sommelier, as a director, you can find, you know, the greater drama in that, hopefully, to, um, you know, appeal to a larger audience. And, you know, um, Ibsen's never going to be Aida, but you know mm-hmm. you can you can still you know find a way to you know hopefully you know tease out you know threads in a way that that you know people respond to and hopefully that that open things up for them. Totally, you could even s- see it that if I produce six productions over a year, each production is as it were a different course. Yeah, and there will be resonances from one production into another. And they'll also be contrasting, and they'll also be yet somehow part of a shared dialogue between an audience and a theatre. The same way when I come to your restaurant, Bill, I'm curious about what's on the dessert menu this week, or I'm curious about how you've uh, prepared a different hors d'oeuvre. These dialogues are also so enriching, and they're, in the end, how communities are built. Oh, no, absolutely. And it always excites me when... I get a sense of an authorial vision, when I get a sense of a puppeteer, you know, paying attention to these things and pulling the strings. And I like that, you know, wines can appeal to guests on a really kind of facile, you know, kind of prima facie sort of level. But equally, if people are willing to take a deeper dive with me that, you know, there are layers of, of meaning there as well. And, you know, that the, the fact that, you know, a particular wine goes on a list next to another one is... You know, thoughtful and meaningful, and, and says something about both of them. I, I, I love absolutely, that. Bill. I think without wanting to overstate the case for sommelier or director, but I think in the absence of God, <laughs> we're interested in authorial voices that bestow meaning to our lives. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, which is a great segue for the sake of uh, the wines that uh, we're exploring today. So, uh, wine had an essential role in um, you know Shakespeare's universe and uh, plays an important part, uh, certainly. Um, in his uh, plays. Now, I want to give a, a kind of a nod of the cap to uh, this brief little pamphlet of a book that I discovered uh, for the sake of preparing for this uh, podcast. And it's from André Simon, who's one of my um, English merchant wine heroes. is a, a Frenchman um, who came to England early part of the 20th century and um, basically was the, the don of his day for the sake of uh, English wine connoisseurship. And um, 
he delivered this lecture, I think, in the, in the 30s, and uh, it was published as a book in, in the 60s to commemorate uh, Shakespeare's, uh, the fourth century of, of Shakespeare's death. And um, he talks a lot about uh, wine historically in Shakespeare's day. And just to kind of frame things for you, Shakespeare born 1564, uh, he um, uh, shuffles off the mortal coil in 1616, and um, only spans two eras, essentially, in English history for the sake of regents, uh, Elizabeth um, and James, so the Elizabethan and, and Jacobite era. Um, and this is, uh, you know, just for the sake of historical context, a, a time when England is very much um, on the rise. It is the emergence of England as a global power, um, you know, kind of the, the seminal event in Shakespeare's lives, 1588, the um, uh, English see off the Spanish Armada, and that kind of signals uh, their emergence onto uh, the international stage. And, and as an empire, um, in Shakespeare's era, uh, wine and commercial goods uh, were readily available as they never had been before. And wine was a integral part of hospitality culture in his day, um, and tavern culture, and taverns were um, just such a seminal part of uh, workaday life for uh, men of Shakespeare's class. You um, spent, uh, you know, your nights at a tavern. Uh, it was uh, less likely that you would keep, um, uh, you know, uh, wine itself at home. You have to imagine wine came from a cask. It didn't come from a bottle. Uh, corks didn't emerge um, in, um, in kind of larger uh, uh, production and use until... Um, uh, the latter part of uh, James's uh, reign. Uh, and uh, so if you wanted to get your drink on, uh, you, you went to the tavern. And uh, wine uh, was what everyone drank. Uh, its price was regu regulated, um, as was uh, the price of bread and ale. And uh, I'm not going to bore you with a, a ton of, of quotes, I promise, um, uh, Simon, but uh, this one is, is brilliant. Uh, this is uh, Andre Simon talking about uh, why the English drink and how they drink. Uh, and he says, uh, they drank wine freely because wine was cheap and they could afford it. They drank wine because the fathers and grandfathers before them had all been wine drinkers. The wine they drank did them good. It cleared their brain and their windpipe. It loosened their tongue and their bowels. It gave them greater assurance in themselves, quickened their receptiveness and sharpened their wit. But all this happened as the sun rises because it is sunrise time and not because the cock crew. They did not drink wine in order to talk or to sleep better, and certainly never in order to get drunk, nor for any set purpose, and as a means to an end, but an end in and of itself, simply because they liked wine. Um, and, uh, you know, for the sake of uh, Shakespeare's plays, uh, that makes me think of, of Falstaff, um, uh, just because he's kind of a preeminent um, uh, Shakespearean drinker. And uh, it's a great segue for the sake of our wine, because... Um, when I think of Falstaff, um, you know, some of his uh, formative quotes revolve around sack, and that's what we're going to start with. Um, just for the sake of a larger topic, Simon, you know, what do you think, to the extent that you think at all, about uh, wine in, um, you know, Shakespeare's canon? Oh, well, thank you. Yes. Um, I mean, he's, he's very smart, Shakespeare, because, of course, he understands all dimensions of a topic, whether that topic be vengeance, whether that be guilt, whether it be love, or whether it be wine. Uh, I'm thinking of that line in uh, uh, As You Like It of the old gentleman that says, uh, though I look old, yet I am strong and lusty, for in my youth I never did apply hot and rebellious liquors in my blood. Oh, yeah, so that's great. So he's kind of aware that uh, wine's fun, but uh, can also have some unexpected 
consequences. I also think, uh, yes, of this line uh, around sack, which you've brilliantly um, shared with us, the idea of Falstaff. I mean, Falstaff says in uh, Henry IV, Part Two, a good sheriff's sack hath a two-fold operation in it. It ascends me into the brain, dries me there the foolish and dull and crudy vapors which environ it. So it ascends me into the brain and dries me there the foolish and dull and crudy vapors which environ it. So he's really grappling with what it means to get drunk. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and how that feels. Well, the, 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 for worse. the stimulation of it all. And, and yes, yeah. uh, it, it should be said for the sake of the liquor reference that in the Elizabethan era, um, there, there was a, a hard and fast distinction between wine as such and liquor. And liquor is not really a potable beverage for the masses until after uh, Elizabeth uh, dies, uh, at which point uh, the regulation of sales, James is, is a, in his own way um, uh, much more conniving uh, as, a, as a merchant. And he uh, does not ensure a steady cost for wine for the masses. And suddenly wine becomes uh, a part of the free market. So people can pay more for the greatest sack. Now, uh, the sack that we're drinking is sherry sack. Uh, sherry, uh, oh, that's claret, uh, uh, the one to the left there, sir. Um, uh, so sherry sack, uh, sherry designation more in southern Spain, and the greatest sacks derived from sherry. Sack was a brand name for a fortified wine. Um, various thoughts about how that name uh, came to be. Uh, one speculation uh, meaning dry from the French sec. I think more likely comes from the Spanish sacar, which means to draw out because uh, you had barrels of fortified wine constantly being replenished and drawn down from. And uh, there were sacks from different corners of the world. There was Canary Island sack. Um, you know, there was, um, you know, sherry sack. Um, there would have been sack from um, the Madeira Island from Portugal. There would have been French sack. And sack was a brand name. Sack referred to this kind of, um, you know, really gorgeous in a glass, kind of amber, potent, mm. uh, dry, nutty uh, um, wine. And uh, it was privileged above all. Uh, it shows up, um, you know, and, and certain brands were better than others. So mm. Sherry Sack was, you know, at the, at the top of right. this. Um, you know, there, there's, you know, Sack from various other uh, points of origin that would have been less highly esteemed. Um, but uh, if you could afford it at the tavern, this, this would have been uh, the, the best of the bunch. But, you know, to kind of circle back, um, liquor, uh, again, would have been, until um, the Jacobite era, um, more something that apothecaries and midwives dealt with, um, which is why you see it in, uh, you know, the midwife deploys it in uh, Romeo and Juliet. You see it in some of the other early plays um, in the context of medicine, but less so in the context of, um, you know, something that people are, are getting um, drunk on. Mm. Well, that, yes, I mean, that makes sense to me because one of the first, actually not one of the, yeah, one of the relatively early Shakespeare's I directed at the National Theatre was Twelfth Night. And in this play, uh, there's a line from Sir Toby Belch to Andrew Aguecheek, who's his sort of comrade in Revels. And he says, oh, night, thou lackst a cup of canary. When did I see thee so put down? Oh, that's great. And at the time, I was like, what's this cup of canary? Is some kind of yellow bird drink or <laughs> some kind of lack of yellow feathers or cup of canary? And then I realized, of course, it's a sweet white wine from the Canary Islands, which I think is to do with your sweet wine family. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, there's another um, point in wine that uh, uh, I'm forgetting what play it is, but he, he refers to 
um, Canary Island is, wine is, is penetrating, um, you know, um, uh, to the extent that, you know, uh, in the same context as, you know, the Henry IV quote, um, you know, it, it enlivens, um, you know, it sharpens the mind, uh, the, the hope is, um, as opposed to, you know, dulling uh, the senses. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, most of the references to, to wine um, are, you know, there, there is some vice, you know, obviously, but, um, you know, they're talking about enlivening the tongue. They're talking about, you know, inspiring, uh, you know, wits. You know, it, it is, you know, enlivening as opposed to uh, dulling in the context of, of, of most of these plays. And uh, interestingly, too, in terms of the um, wordplay there, so Canary the Bird, um, the etymology there is the island. So, um, you know, the, the island itself gave the bird a name, and the island... Uh, you know, the name of the island comes from Canis. It's dog. So you can think of canaries as dog birds. Wow, if you want that's to. brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, and absolutely. The, fest- the, the festive in Shakespeare is often linked to alcohol. In the same play, Twelfth Night, you have the line, do you think because you are virtuous that there shall be no more cakes and ale? Yeah. And that's really the cry of the hedonist, Toby Belch. Cakes and ale are absolutely the recipe for fun. And the puritanical Malvolio is trying to kind of ban them from having fun. And the first thing that Malvolio wants to kind of kick out are the cakes and ale, the stamp of honour that Belch wears. Yeah, and it's interesting. Shakespeare very much belongs to the spirit of the tavern culture of his age. And the tavern is equally a place of refuge. You know, you are in the midst of, you know, Reformation era and, and, you know, the tavern is a place that you can requ- retire to and find a private room in and have earnest conversations about things like religion that you might not be able to discuss openly elsewhere in the in the public sphere. And Shakespeare is celebrating that. And, you know, he is opposing, you know, tavern life, of which he's a part, to, um, you know, the more puritanical, um, you know, kind of strains of English life that will ultimately... Um, consume the country for the sake of the Civil War. And, um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, of course, theatres themselves were finally closed. Yes, yes. And um, as an act of puritanical revenge on all those cakes and ale that I'm sure was consumed <laughs> in the Globe Theatre during many performances. Yeah, and, and I mean, the great thing about the, the Bard, though, is uh, I think he, he manages to see both sides, you know, and he's, he's slippery that way. Um, but, uh, you know, even when he seems to have a bias, he actively promotes, um, you know, a different, a different viewpoint. And uh, I, I think that's the case for, uh, you know, the sake of, um, you know, alcohol as well. And as much as Falstaff is celebrating it, he is clearly, um, you know, being sent up by the very, you know, playwright who is, you know, kind of giving him voice. Yeah, totally. And maybe this is a good moment to, to, to also share that we, we think that it's possible that alcohol led to the demise not only of some of Shakespeare's characters but to Shakespeare himself. Yeah, he was out with drinking buddies, right? Correct. We have this interesting quote from John Ward, the vicar of Stratford, uh, who left the following entry in his diary, and he was the vicar from 1648 to 1679, so after the death of Shakespeare. And it's, it, it's really the only piece of information that we have concerning the death of the dramatist. And it reads, Shakespeare, Drayton, and Ben Johnson had a merry meeting, and it seems drank too hard, for Shakespeare died of a fever there contracted. Bummer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you could definitely you could blame 
he drowned in his cups, I guess. Uh, Absolutely. So that's a good cautionary note for us yeah. all. <laughs> no, that, that, that is, that is a, a, certainly a word of caution. And, um, you know, he's relatively young. I mean, the, the, I think the contemporary commentary talks about him, you know, dying before his time. Yeah, um, absolutely. And he just right. retired to That's Stratford right. at, that, at that point. Which is another good warning about the perils of retirement. Never, ne- never retire to Stratford. <laughs> um, uh, it brings us to our, our second uh, Shakespearean one. This is Claret. So this would have been uh, more emblematic of drinking in an earlier era. So um, the English for the better part of centuries, um, beginning with the union of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, in the 12th century, um, uh, whereupon, you know, uh, England consumed, uh, uh, kind of took control of Gascony. And uh, Bordeaux, um, which is, you know, part of that, you know, region of southwestern France, um, becomes the source of English wine to this day. Um, and the English call it claret. And the greatest uh, wines from Bordeaux they're celebrating are called claret. Bordeaux produces different wines. Bordeaux produces Grave, which is typically a white wine from uh, the left bank and, and, and further south of the city itself. It produces, you know, certainly some of the greatest red wines in the world, uh, although ironically not from um, the Omadoc that we know today, typically from uh, uh, further uh, north. Omadoc was a swamp at that time. Uh, but the greatest uh, Bordeaux wines of their time would have been what is called Claret, uh, which is... Uh, derived from the root for clear, essentially. You could see through the wine. And uh, it would have looked like a rosé. And this is emblematic of um, the greatish uh, Bordeaux of its day. And uh, this comes from uh, a modern uh, producer that um, this is a designation of origin for Bordeaux Claret. It's a a wine from Merlot and Cabernet Franc that spends 24 to 48 hours on the skins. Not a style that most modern drinkers associate with Bordeaux. Um, I think to the extent that um, most American drinkers recognize Bordeaux at all. It's in the context of the classified gross and uh, the greatest names in the wine pantheon. But it can equally be this fun kind of clear wine. Have you ever had claret before? Uh, well, I, have, I haven't had this wine before. And it, you're right, it's very light and it's very, um, um, yeah, it's light and it's fun and it's vibrant mm-hmm. in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have expected. Yeah, and you have to imagine here, there is no... Um, kind of uh, tradition in Shakespeare's day of bottle-aging wine. It doesn't exist, uh, bottle-aged wine. Uh, you know, corks haven't, you know, come into use. Bottles aren't a sufficiently standardized size uh, that, you know, you can market wine that way. Everything comes out of cask. And so you're typically drinking everything, you know, within a year. So the idea is that you're drinking the product of the previous harvest uh, before the next harvest comes along. And uh, there's a big vogue every time a new vintage of wine comes out for the freshest wine. And, you know, by the time you get to summer, especially for the sake of spoilage, you know, people are probably shifting more of their consumption to ale, which you can kind of continuously produce, uh, as opposed to, you know, wine at this point is a better part of a a year's old and and tastes like vinegar. But um, uh, Claret is for... um, three centuries, uh, uh, truly, um, after the 11th century, you know, the drink of the masses in, um, throughout England. That changes a bit because uh, in the Elizabethan era, uh, the merchants of, of Bordeaux in England, uh, France at this point, having regained control of um, the Gironde estuary, they start to tax each other. And yeah. so uh, Claret becomes much more expensive. Yes, uh, and, and, and actually, funny enough, I found this um, very resonant line from Henry the fourth part two, which really speaks to that, which is um, the revolutionary Jack Cade says, I charge and command that of the city's cost, the pissing conduit run nothing but claret wine. 
And I feel like that's very much him kind of clawing back yeah. the wine that was so once so loved and so available. Well, yeah, and we're, and we're sending up the French there a, a little bit as well. I, uh, and I love your, your delivery there. Uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, though. Shakespeare kind of belongs to a different era. You know, a sack is um, the, uh, the great wine of his era, and that very, very much speaks to, uh, you know, this kind of early period of the age of exploration. Uh, Fortified wines, fortification for the sake of a wine like the sherry that we're drinking would not have been available uh, in previous centuries before the Elizabethan era. And, um, you know, he is drinking something that's a little stronger still than uh, people people did previously. It's not as potent as spirits, mm. uh, but, you know, it enlivens the blood a little more. And I, I think it's interesting the extent to which you see this this creep. Uh, and, and, you know, you see consumers variously glorifying stronger and stronger potence. Um, uh, ben Johnson, you know, who, who lives, you know, centuries after Shakespeare or century after Shakespeare, he talks about uh, English claret as being for boys, port, which is a fortified wine, kind of like the sherry that we're drinking, uh, being for men, mm -hmm. and brandy being for heroes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I feel like we are, you know, progressing up the ABV ladder and, you know, gradually deifying more, you know, potent liqueurs. And, well, that's right, but and I wonder whether there's also a kind of a kind of version of that in our own lives, in that we all we all tend to seek the harder stuff as we get older. And excuse me, um, maybe we're all on a sort of strange journey towards uh, towards the spirit in one way or another. I, I don't know. I I find myself traipsing the opposite arc and seeking seeking out you know uh, easier easier going drinks uh, as I as I get older. Um, well, yes, good for you. I'm going to try and follow your example. <laughs> Um, uh, at any rate, uh, we're gonna we're gonna shift gears here um, and uh, try a, a bit of Momzi. Momzi um, is is Madeira, um, and uh, Madeira is an island off of the coast of um, Africa. Uh, belongs to the Portuguese. It was legitimately discovered in, by the Portuguese, not um, discovered in a you know European colonial way, but uh, uninhabited uh, when they stumbled upon it. Uh, the name of the island derives from the Portuguese for wood, Madeira, and they, um, you're doing a lot of etymology here. I mean, it feels fitting for the sake of Shakespeare. Mm, yeah, very <laughs> good. Yes. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm scratching that itch a little too much, but uh, the Portuguese uh, subsequently tore down a lot of that uh, wood and planted vines, and uh, because it was a commercial product that they could trade uh, as people came through. And uh, they were trading this wine. They discovered that the wine that they're trading, which was relatively dilute, you know, 10%, per, 11% alcohol. It's a very maritime climate. It's hard to get grapes to properly ripen. Uh, it keeps better when they add spirit to it, when they add some brandy to it. And, uh, and then the next great discovery in Madeira is that uh, it tastes better at the end of the journey than at the beginning. And um, for that sake the greatest Madeiras of their time were what's called Vinos de Roda. So they're wines that circumnavigated the globe on uh, the decks of these you know, ocean-going ships. And uh, Portuguese uh, kind of devise a way to replicate that process on the island, uh, which is essentially just you know, baking the wine uh, on the eaves of these hot houses. Uh, the, the eaves are called canteros, so the, it's called the cantero uh, method. And uh, it comes kind of at different shapes and sizes, uh, the greatest of which um, in the modern era is called Momzi. Uh, kind of a, an English predilection for uh, maiming uh, local words. So the word sherry, it's thought derived from Jerez, somehow, in, uh, which is the, the port from which the wine shipped. 
Uh, Momzi, a little less um, uh, kind of unfortunate, comes out of Malbazia. I can see how, like, in an English accent, Malbazia becomes Momzi. Mm, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, and actually, the only uh, reference that I've managed to find in, in, in the plays to Malmsey is this rather ominous reference. In Very the, ominous. Which is the Hugely third, ominous, yeah. Um, which, of course, is we will chop him in the Malmsey butt in the next room, which refers to the murder of Clarence. So a Malmsey butt has uh, fairly sinister connotations in, uh, in certainly Shakespeare's imagination. Yeah, so this is in Richard III. Uh, is it a, I mean, it's dark. It's probably the darkest historical play. Certainly some of the darkest uh, historical material. Uh, it reminds me a lot of uh, Poe. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe has a, a different short story called The Cask of Amontillado. Uh, there's less drowning. There's more walling off, um, which I feel like is a worse way to go. Uh, being walled off and left to die slowly. So I'd rather, I feel like I'd rather drown in a cask of, of Malmsey there. Well, that, that's good to know. That yeah. <laughs> if push comes to shove, yes, yes, exactly. that's your direction yeah, of travel. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Jim, that would have, I feel like, been seen as a pretty good way to go in, in Shakespeare's era. Uh, Malmsey, a hugely celebrated uh, uh, product in, an, in and of its own right. And, um, you know, it would have been top shelf. So, you know, you went into a tavern and... and you know, in the Elizabethan era, wine was kind of cost-controlled, so you would have been, uh, like your entry-level ale or bread, guaranteed something, um, you know, for the sake of the state that was essentially subsidized, much, much like the French subsidized wine uh, to this day. Um, but there would have been a top shelf uh, as well. And, and, you know, for the sake of what we're drinking today, claret, uh, because of, you know, this new development of, um, you know, merchants uh, at, at war with each other, you know, economically, if, if not um, you know, literally, and then for the sake of Malmsey, uh, just a, a more luxurious uh, uh, product mm. uh, for um, the sake of your, you know, Elizabethan era tavern that, that Shakespeare would have frequented. And I think, you know, the other thing that emerges in the play is that Shakespeare is clearly someone who's consuming these things. You know, mm. he's clearly a tippler. Mm. Um, you know, he clearly can tell, you know, he's immersed in, you know, the finer distinction between uh, Momsey and Sherry Sack, and even between, you know, regular Sack and non-Sherry Sack. Um, and I know, as, as a sommelier, I always find that inspiring. Yes. I mean, I think what's so awe-inspiring about Shakespeare is that he was curious about so many things. And he had this remarkable memory, it seems, for um, ornithology, for the landscape, for the way that clouds move, that rain falls. He couldn't look at anything and not see the nuance, even in a glass of wine. His antennae were up all the time, and it's the fruits of his extraordinarily attentive nature that gives his plays such value to us today. Oh, that's beautifully said. Um, yeah, I, I quite like that. And it's funny, too, because he, he didn't go to Cambridge. He didn't go to Oxford. Uh, he, you know, um, wasn't one of the university wits. He, you know, was... was you know, essentially commoner, and, and, you know, he wasn't a total autodidact, but, um, you know, I, I, he strikes me as a sponge, you know, he, he strikes me as, mm. you know, like you said, someone whose antennas are up, even when he's at the tavern, um, and as, if not especially when he was at a tavern, mm. um, you know, I can think of, there's this great uh, um, story about James Joyce, uh, just, you know, drinking, he's always in Trieste, you know, um, uh, and, you know, he just liked to listen to the waiter's talk. He liked the restaurant environment for the sake of, you know, teasing out dialogue. And, and you know, we, 
he wrote at his table and occasionally, you know, made himself laugh. And, you know, like Shakespeare had a really bawdy sense of humor. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like um, Shakespeare would have learned as much at the tavern as he did in a more conventionally, you know, in the context of a, a more conventionally academic discourse. Absolutely. I mean, we know that he went to a good grammar school in Stratford, that his father was the former mayor of Stratford, but that, interestingly, he didn't go to university. There's, in fact, a number of years that are considered the lost years of Shakespeare, where he sort of disappears off the radar. Was he travelling the country as an actor? Was he a tutor for some kind of aristocratic family? Was he training to be a lawyer? These are all suggestions that people have come up with. But what we also know is that he was extraordinarily good and not only observing things, but then transforming them into a metaphorical expression. So, for example, I mean, another drink that we haven't talked about, but maybe we will in a minute, is the, the posset, which is a little bit like the modern eggnog, which I oh, know yeah. in the States is very popular. I've been drinking it over Christmas. Uh, how, do you uh, feel, how do you feel about They don't do eggnog in uh, England? No. Really? Uh, no. I mean, I think there are probably versions of it. Maybe, uh, indeed, there's, there's probably a posset. But eggnog is not a standard festive drink oh, heard. in England. They're probably I'm, better off for it. I'm delighted to find it. It feels like a, sort of, <laughs> a kind of glamorous Baileys. Well, there's, um, a, there's actually a long tradition of like, uh, like potent potables as food stuff. So uh, the bard actually talks about um, sack in various contexts. So you can have bread with your sack in his place. You can have an egg in your sack. So, you know, it was a tavern meal in as much as it was a tavern wine at times. Well, that makes sense. But also, um, there's this, of course, in, in Hamlet, um, Hamlet, you'll remember the story is of uh, Hamlet has lost his father and then the ghost of his father returns to say, I died unnaturally. In fact, it was, um, it was your uncle who killed me. And he, the ghost describes the kind of agony of being poisoned in these terms. And with a sudden vigour, it doth posset, and curd, like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. And with a sudden vigour, it doth posset, and curd, like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. So he's using not only alcohol or images of alcoholic drinks, but equally how liquids change and metamorphose to become a way of speaking about how it feels to be not only poisoned, but also somehow cursed. Yeah, it's like uh, your, your soul is curdled. Exactly. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's brilliant. Um, and there's actually, in cocktail culture, um, there's something called uh, egg... Um, it's, well, there's like a milk punch um, that you... Um, is essentially whey, uh, but uh, you kind of optimize the curdle and you strain the whey off and uh, creates this drink that has this like really unique... or uh, this kind of uh, punch that has a really unique texture that it, that it wouldn't otherwise. Oh, it sounds lovely. I really hope I can, uh, I can drink some of that at the restaurant. Uh, we, we, uh, we've, we've played around with it at times. It's kind of a pain in the ass to strain, uh, but uh, mm. uh, it, is, it is cool stuff. Um, uh, one final one, uh, equally mentioned in um, Hamlet. So uh, Hamlet refers a couple times of uh, Rhenish mm. um, uh, wine, and, and Rhenish in this context is uh, the Rhine. Um, the reference I really dig um, uh, for the sake of this one, uh, comes from uh, Merchant of Venice, though. Um, I don't know exactly when in a play this is, but uh, uh, we've been tasting uh, oxidized wines for the sake of the Malvasia um, and the Sherry. They come from white grapes, but they're essentially brown wines. Um, you know, or, you know what, the, what the French call Vengeon, or they're like, you know, they, they acquire their color for, uh, through their exposure to air over time, and they look less white than they do burnished umber in the glass beautifully. And then Claret is this, you know, beautifully pink 
wine. But we haven't anything white yet. And um, uh, a Rhenish wine is just that. So in Merchant of Venice, they say, uh, there's more difference between thy flesh and hers than between jet and ivory, more between your bloods than there is between red wine and Rhenish. Uh, but tell us, do you hear whether Antonio have had any loss at sea or no? So uh, I, I like that uh, um, more difference between you than, than red and white uh, wine. Yes, and also going back, I mean, on, on Hamlet, uh, Hamlet describes Claudius as drinking deep his Rhenish down. Ah. And this is um, a reference to Claudius being the murderer in the play. So the fact that he's, he's drinking heavily of this particular Rhenish wine um, is, from Hamlet's point of view, evidence of yeah. his... Yeah. Duplicity, yeah. Duplicity, duplicity and unreliability, and, uh, and definitely it's a drink that the monarch shouldn't be drinking. Oh, heard. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm here for that. Um, I, I like the you know, subtext for a lot of shakes. So you know, Hamlet's essentially a detective story. Um, Hamlet, terrible detective. Uh, um, not, not the greatest, not the greatest, not the greatest. Well, he detective. takes a long time to make a, you know, <laughs> takes a long time about it. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of insufferable, insufferable detective. But, uh, um, at, at any rate, uh, the wine we're drinking as a standard for Rhenish, uh, probably the, the greatest bunch. Yeah, you should dump, you should dump your claret there because it's unfortified. Otherwise, uh, yeah, it'll just taste like Malmsey. Yeah. Um, and this is, uh, from a historic, uh, estate. Um, so this is from... Uh, the Rhine. It comes from a single vineyard uh, that uh, has been producing wine continuously since uh, the 13th century. Uh, so, uh, you know, this appeals to me about wine in the continent, um, uh, particularly in Germany, uh, has a, a tradition as, as deep as any corner of France. And uh, Kindrich Grafenberg is the, uh, uh, the vineyard Grafenberg um, being the, the particular parcel, uh, Kindrich being the, the village and uh, they've been making wine continuously here for almost a thousand years. Uh, this is a producer that's comparatively young um, by uh, Rheingau standards, or we're, we're kind of on, in the heart of the Rhine, um, because uh, they were established in the 19th century. Um, that's, that's young by Rheingau standards. And this is one of the greatest dry Rieslings in the world. It's made in really old-fashioned style. So this is aged in these larger, uh, what the Germans call um, uh, boti, uh, or, or I mean, boti would be the Italian word. Um, uh, they would say, um, uh, Stuckfass um, uh, uh, in, in German. So just these massive oak um, uh, vessels, 1,000 liters. Um, and uh, it has a savory quality to it, um, and it's bone dry. And it's uh, very characteristic of the greatest wines that would have made their way to, um, you know, the duplicitous uncles of the world, um, you know, in, in Shakespeare's era. Um, you were definitely, you know, paying a premium for this, but... Uh, this is very much a, a, a natural wine in the sense that, um, you know, it is made with native yeast and uh, it is unfiltered and unfined. Uh, there, there'd be a little sulfur added to the mix, um, uh, which would have been done in Shakespeare's era for the sake of, uh, you know, burning, striking a match in a, in a wine before it was shipped in, in cask. But um, I don't know. I, I think there's a timelessness to it uh, that yeah. I associate with leaching that I utterly adore. But also there's something kind of hedonistic about it. Absolutely. And maybe that's why uh, Hamlet's so anxious that Claudia, Claudius is drinking so much of it. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know if, like, um, I'm sure in Shakespeare's day, you know, there were certain associations that you made um, according to someone's tipple of, of choice. You know, so if someone came in and asked for 
the Shakespearean equivalent of a buttery Chardonnay, you know, you made certain, you know, presumptions about them. If they came in, they asked for, you know, a nerdy orange wine. You, you made certain presumptions about them. And, um, yeah. And I think it goes back to, you know, Toby Belch likes cakes and ale and the effete Andrew Agucheek likes a cup of canary. Yeah, totally. No, that's great. And yeah, I mean, ale has always been plebeian. You know, it's always been a drink of the masses and wine, you know, has always been associated with the upper class. And, you know, I think for Shakespeare's, um, um, uh, sake too, you know, Shakespeare was very much upwardly mobile. You know, he he purchases the second, you know, Costley's house in Stratford. Um, you know, initially he is, you know, viewed kind of skeptically by the, the university kind of dramaturgs. And um, I think acquiring knowledge about wine for him kind of would have been a ticket to, you know, the upper echelons of, of you know, the kind of circles that he wanted to belong to. Also, I think we... we, 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 we can remember that he's writing for an extremely wide spectrum of audience members. He was writing for the groundlings that had paid very little money, were standing up throughout the shows, and he was writing for the aristocratic elite who would be in the boxes. And so what I think he's always trying to do is to find a language of the world which speaks simultaneously to all these layers of society. So he was able to make a very in-joke about a certain kind of expensive wine, but also he was able to make a very jocular reference to exactly the alcohol. He's able to able like, he's also making like maidenhead puns and stuff like that. Totally, yeah. totally. Do you bite your thumb at me, sir? And yeah. he's always moving from the bawdy to the erudite, from the holy to the rough. Uh, it appeals to me because we, we are definitely still doing that uh, for the sake of uh, your work uh, and, you know, for the, for the sake of mine. And I think sometimes uh, it's easy to imagine, you know, there's high art and there's low but, uh, you know, I like to, you know, I think, I think the greatest artists are the ones that are able to, um, you know, mix that all up and yeah, totally. ex expose it for what it is. Totally. And, and I suppose my, my little knowledge of restaurants is that I'm, I understand there's always this discussion about what are your kind of accessible staples. What is the, the hamburger or the bacon sandwich or the, um, the risotto that's just going to be affordable and totally compelling to the widest possible client base? And then what are your more erudite dishes that are going to attract fewer but um, are equally necessary? I mean, I, I think in terms of like Emily Dickinson to that extent, you know, it's like tell the truth but tell it slant. So uh, I like the idea that, you know, maybe you don't have to offer a wedge salad, but you can offer something that, you know, scratches Kind of, kind of the same itch. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, the Bard was retelling, you know, he borrowed a lot of his plots. Um, you know, he collaborated, uh, especially early and late in his career, with other, you know, uh, dramatists. And, um, you, you know, at, at, the, at the end of the day, he was just trying to, not trying to, he did, you know, invent language. He put his own imprint on, you know, these timeless, timeless themes and timeless stories. Absolutely, and he loved mixing up genres. So he loved taking a play like Macbeth, which is filled with the darkest, most violent, tragic characters, and then writing in a character like the Porter. And, of course, the Porter in Macbeth has these immortal lines, Drink, sir, is a great provoker of three things. Nose painting, sleep, <laughs> and urine. <laughs> Lechery, sir, it provokes and unprovokes. It provokes the desire, but takes away the performance. And I'm sure uh, his audience would have much enjoyed the idea of drink provoking the desire, but taking away the performance. So he's putting the bawdy and the, uh, and the sophisticated merrily together. 
Great. Love that. So I'm going to close out with um, one of the sonnets. This is uh, 15. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll unintroduced uh, read it for you all. When I consider everything that grows, holds in perfection but a little moment, that this huge stage presenteth not but shows, whereon the stars and secret influence comment. When I perceive that men as plants increase, cheered and checked, even by the selfsame sky, vaunt in their youthful sap at height decrease, and wear their brave state out of memory, then the conceit of this inconstant stay sets you most rich in youth before my sight, where wasteful time debateth with decay to change your day of youth to sullied night, and all in war with time for love of you, ash takes from you, I engraft you anew. Uh, I really dig that for the sake of wine. Obviously, wine uh, not mentioned uh, in the mix there, but uh, uh, that last line in particular. Um, so he's talking about you know the immortality of art uh, as opposed to um, you know the the um, you know thin blink of time that we all occupy. And uh, I engraft you new. Engrafting is um, joining one plant with another, and it is hugely significant uh, for the sake of viticulture and grape growing and 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 wine making. Um, and you know this notion of uh, humans as plants, uh, very much consistent with, um, you know, wine and, you know, the cycles of, um, you know, uh, the turn of the earth and, and the stars that uh, bring it our way. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Simon. Uh, having tasted uh, through, you know, four of the, these, these are not the only archetypes that should be said that uh, show up in um, uh, Shakespeare's canon. Uh, there are certainly four of, like, the most commonly occurring, but... You know, having uh, had a banquet of these wines and kind of drank um, as you might have at an Elizabethan tavern, does it make you see your work at all in a new and different light? Oh, absolutely. I feel like I, I, I've taken several steps closer uh, to Falstaff this evening as I've, uh, <laughs> I've been in your wonderful tavern, Bill. Thank you with your wonderful selection of wines, as I do whenever I enter the Reveler's Hour. And um, it inspires me to take some of these wines back into the rehearsal room with me and uh, give my fellow actors a real taste of uh, Elizabethan England in the way you've described it this evening. So thank you for having me and giving me this glimpse into Shakespeare's life from a very different perspective. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, so for those of you listening, uh, if you're interested in these wines, we'll do our best to make, um, you know, some, not all of them available to you at Reveler's Hour across the way from our line hotel studios. First and foremost, go out to the theater, uh, Shakespeare Theater Company. Uh, your production of King Lear uh, starts later this month, does it not? That's right. The official opening night is the 1st of March and it runs through until the middle of April. Uh, it's very exciting. Buy a ticket. Uh, the theater is such a great gift, and Washington is such uh, an amazing uh, place uh, for theater and other cultural offerings. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, stay tuned and stay thirsty for more of The Universe in a Glass. <laughs>